The world is desperately in need of infrastructure that accelerates growth and social development. But not just any infrastructure, we need infrastructure for good. Infrastructure that addresses disparities, protects the environment, and creates widespread social and economic opportunity. Welcome to Economist Impact's Infrastructure for Good podcast series. My name is Matt Terry. I'm a senior analyst in the Policy and Insights team at Economist Impact, based in New York. And I'm the research project manager for the Infrastructure for Good initiative. In this third episode, we'll explore the main findings of the new Infrastructure for Good barometer, which provides a cross-country ranking of infrastructure ecosystems in 30 of the world's biggest infrastructure markets. This initiative is sponsored by Deloitte and supported by our research partner, Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability. Before we dive in today, let me introduce my colleague, Mateus Getlinger, who's an analyst based in Brazil to give a quick overview of the barometer and the rankings. Thanks, Matt. I've really enjoyed being a part of this research the past year. And so the big question we're looking to answer is, how well are countries doing at working toward infrastructure for good? And the top five in our barometer are Canada at number one, followed by the UK, Germany, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And how exactly are we measuring this? Our framework is based around five different pillars of what good infrastructure should look like. The first two pillars are related to general foundations for good infrastructure. So that is governance and planning and sustainable financing and investments. And then the following pillars are related to different outcomes that infrastructure should achieve. So those are social and community impact, economic benefits and empowerment, and environmental sustainability and resilience. One major takeaway is that no country scored over 70 out of 100 points in the overall ranking. Our top-performing country, Canada, only scored 70.4, so that means that there's plenty of room for improvement across the board. And our goal with the barometer is to provide a blueprint for how countries can effectively bridge that gap. Another important takeaway from the barometer is that performance in the first two pillars, so those are the foundational pillars of governance and financing, is stronger than performance related to the outcome pillars. Those are socioeconomic and environmental outcomes. So what that suggests is that while many important foundations are in place, there is still a long road ahead to achieving good results. The barometer establishes this baseline for what good infrastructure looks like and creates a roadmap that enables better decision-making around the world, whether that's for policymakers, legislators, investors, or infrastructure companies. This was only a very brief overview of our findings, so I'd encourage you to explore the online barometer tool on the Infrastructure for Good website, where you can find all of our research, data visualizations, videos, and more. So Matt, back to you. Thanks for providing that great background, Mateus. And to help us dig into some of the most interesting key findings today, let me introduce our two experts. We have Sarah Mason with us, a senior policy associate at the Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability at Duke University, and Tanya Soneva, a senior director of global infrastructure research at CBRE Investment Management. Sarah and Tanya, thanks for joining us today. It would be great to hear a little bit more about what you do. Um, Sarah, let's start with you. Thanks, Matt. My work at the Nicholas Institute at Duke is centered on really being a bridge between the university and decision makers in both the public and private sectors. And I've done collaborative projects focusing on environmental mitigation requirements associated with infrastructure development, U.S. federal and international resilience policymaking, capacity building related to sustainable infrastructure, as well as a lot of more recent work on nature-based solutions or nature-based infrastructure. Thanks, Sarah. And Tanya, over to you. 
Thanks, Matt, and I'm a senior director at CBRE Investment Management and I lead the global infrastructure research capability. So CBRE Investment Management is uh, one of the world's largest real asset manager. Uh, we have about over $140 billion of assets under management. And in my role, what I do is I support our unlisted infrastructure strategy as well as our listed infrastructure strategy. Thank you. So let's start with governance and planning, a major theme in the barometer. And a lot of countries do seem to be getting many things right on this. However, planning's only the foundation. Making that jump from planning to execution to achieving positive infrastructure outcomes, that's still a challenge for many countries. Uh, we do see a few countries, though, like Canada and the UK, that stand out in the barometer for having both strong planning and strong results across all different areas. So, Tanya, we'll start with you. What are the top performers doing right, and what can other countries learn from them to improve their planning and execution of infrastructure? Thanks, Matt. And let's start with the role models first, and then, then I will move to the, to the areas of improvement. As they say, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. It all starts with a good plan. It starts with policymakers, with governments having a strategic vision of the needs for infrastructure, of what the infrastructure of the future should look like so that they're building the right assets. Infrastructure assets by their very nature are long-term. In fact, um, many of the UK water systems were built in, in Victorian times. So a good national plan, I would say, is not just about the next five or 10 years. It's much more long-term. When it comes to UK water, the environmental plan spans for more than 25 years. But the areas of improvement, those uh, aspects which will give investors more confidence, I would say it's really governments looking at infrastructure as, a, as an ecosystem rather than in silos, having coordinated and, and, and consultative approach. And this is particularly true when it comes to emerging technologies in infrastructure. I mean, if we take uh, green hydrogen, to be effective, Green Hydrogen National Plan should consider all the elements of a hydrogen economy. So not just the subsidizing the production of the green fuel, but also the backbone infrastructure, anything from ports to the pipelines that carry the fuel to the end user. So infrastructure plans should be encompassing of all the dots within the value chain. Great insights, Tanya. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, what struck you in the barometer? Do you see any areas that countries can improve their planning and their execution? Yeah, I want to build on what Tanya was just talking about, national infrastructure strategies, which are great tools to start thinking about, you know, planning infrastructure in a more systematic way. And while these plans are relatively common, one additional layer that can really help is when these plans or strategies incorporate specific goals related to social and environmental outcomes. So adding these types of goals helps make sure that countries are planning for these outcomes from the earliest stages and really shows an infrastructure for good mindset. And while most countries release these natural infrastructure strategies, conducting needs assessments to inform those plans is less frequent. Um, one country that does do this is the UK, which does needs assessments at regular intervals to track infrastructure needs over time. And starting from these needs assessments rather than specific infrastructure projects is a really good way to think about building infrastructure from a multidisciplinary perspective based on consultation and thinking about needs from various sectors, stakeholder groups, and communities to help decide 
what infrastructure solutions are possible and really needed most and kind of helps get infrastructure planning done from the ground up. One thing, uh, you, you mentioned gaps. One thing I think countries could think about doing more of is monitoring and evaluation of infrastructure outcomes. There are just a few countries included in the barometer that have organizations that coordinate monitoring and evaluation of infrastructure outcomes and performance over time. And monitoring and evaluation done by these coordinating bodies adds a layer of scrutiny and ensures that goals are being met or at least progress towards those goals is being made. And monitoring and evaluation, I think, is going to be even more essential with climate change to ensure that infrastructure outcomes are being maintained with stresses and shocks to the system. Perfect, Sarah. Thank you. Those are some great comments. Um, you had mentioned early stage planning being important. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between what early stage planning is versus late stage planning and how a country can focus on getting these plans in place at an early stage in the infrastructure development process? Yeah, early stage planning is really important because it enables enhanced consultation. It enables examining potential sort of intended and unintended consequences of individual projects and thinking really at that strategic high level about what needs are across a country in general. And it allows a country to think about infrastructure really from that needs mindset rather than thinking about individual projects as funding becomes available. So if you have that that overarching plan to begin with, um, it's much easier to implement projects that are going to meet your needs and meet goals that you have across the board if that overarching plan is in place, rather than just trying to fit funding into a project uh, that is just convenient to fund. Exactly. Um, and I think that offers a good segue into the next portion of our discussion, which is on sustainable financing and investment and what point those funds come in. So one challenge we're seeing for many countries in the barometer is translating plans and policies into financially viable and attractive projects for investors. And this is important because if infrastructure is not financially sustainable, it cannot be a net positive over the long term for society. Some countries in the barometer are doing fairly well at investing to meet their needs, uh, particularly those in Europe. Many countries, though, around the world do have significant infrastructure investment gaps, and those are only getting wider as we look into the future. Uh, many have even more trouble when it comes to financing projects specifically that tend to be more socially or environmentally oriented. So a question for you, Tanya, is what is the role of private capital in infrastructure and why do we need it? There is a significant place for private capital to play in the financing of, of infrastructure needs. And uh, just to put things in the context, if we take the, the clean energy transition, the International Energy Agency estimates that we need to invest uh, $5.4 trillion annually by 2030 to achieve the 1.5 degree scenario, I mean, to really achieve our climate objectives. And out of this, um, we need $1.4 trillion of private equity, $2 trillion of private lending, $1.2 trillion of the capital markets. The reason why I'm saying is these are very, very large amounts. And what we've seen is that the countries that have smaller infrastructure gaps these are the countries that have been able to harness private capital for decades. I mean, if you take Western European countries, for example, 
I call them the the cradle of private infrastructure investing, and and that's because you know they can efficiently fund projects. Private capital is also becoming uh, more important today because government's balance sheets are stretched. They've been squeezed after the pandemic support. Also, think about the global energy crisis uh, last year. European governments had to bail out households. So governments need the private sector to step in, to fund and close infrastructure gaps. Otherwise, we will be in danger of uh, underinvesting in infrastructure. What kind of resources, what kind of institutions can help overcome these bottlenecks in financing? Well, first I'll say that there is no shortage of capital for sustainable infrastructure projects. It really is about um, energizing pipelines, uh, making sure that projects uh, get off the ground. And um, going through anecdotes, if we take investing in, in renewable energy, for example, one of the challenges that we see, and that's particularly in Europe, is around permitting. Uh, there's long delays of renewable projects because they wait for permits. And a lot of the issues, uh, part of the problem lies with the local municipalities. So what I'm going to say is that uh, there is a need for institutional support. There is a need for resources at all levels of government, of uh, different agencies, uh, so that we can successfully evaluate uh, complex infrastructure projects. I think governments uh, have to also think about the right educational programs, uh, upskilling programs, because we do need specialized skills for digital engineers, uh, for engineers um, in the clean energy uh, sectors. Wonderful. Thank you for the comments. We'll move on now to section three of the barometer, which is all about social and community impact. So now that we've got the foundations in place, um, we can start thinking about the types of outcomes that infrastructure should really have on communities and across society. So this pillar shows a lot of room for improvement. In fact, it has on average the lowest scores in the barometer. In particular, we're seeing significant gaps across areas like engaging with local communities and implementing socially inclusive development strategies. Most countries in the barometer are only doing these things in an ad hoc sort of way. But we did see a few bright spots in places like Canada, Australia, and the UK. So what makes these countries stand out? And what can other countries do to make the infrastructure process more inclusive or more collaborative and responsive to local needs? Sarah, I'll turn it to you for this. Do you have any thoughts about how community engagement can be improved? Yeah, the, the low scores here, the findings are, are really interesting Less than half of the countries included in the barometer require consultations on infrastructure projects with local communities. And of those countries that do require consultation, there's relatively little transparency about the findings from those processes. Um, both Australia and Canada do have policies that go kind of one step further than just an engagement requirement or a consultation requirement. So these are somewhat of bright spots that, that we can look to. And their policies actually promote inclusive engagement. So they're specifically trying to bring indigenous communities, especially into the engagement process on infrastructure projects. And I do want to point out that the best practice for these policies that encourage community engagement should really be focused on engagement and consultation starting at planning stages of projects. But there is a need to make sure that engagements are done in meaningful ways that can actually influence project design and implementation and aren't just kind of done to, to check a box. 
So for any country designing engagement requirements, this needs to be considered carefully and, and designed in thoughtful ways when those policies are being created. And along with inclusive engagement, there are also a few countries that actually have policies really promoting inclusive infrastructure outcomes. So for example, the U.S. is attempting to do this through the Justice 40 initiative, which states that at least 40% of overall benefits of certain federal investments or national investments, which includes many different types of infrastructure investments, need to flow to disadvantaged communities that have historically been underserved by government investment. It's a great example. Um, Tanya, you had mentioned that Canada also has been doing some interesting work around social inclusivity. Um, do you want to talk a little more about that? Yes, and first of all, I just want to echo that community engagement is critical for infrastructure. The infrastructure doesn't impact only the economy, it really pervasively impacts our daily lives. And that's why any sustainable infrastructure investment comes with a, a social license to operate. So Canada is a good example. A good example of how to make uh, sure community engagement is more inclusive. I think significant efforts have been made to ensure that infrastructure projects involve key stakeholders, including um, underrepresented groups in the community engagement process. So at a high level, Canada uses national strategic assessments. Uh, the country prioritizes infrastructure with strong uh, social outcomes. But also, I think what's more important is at the project level, we have uh, methodologies of how to conduct these uh, social assignments. And, you know, we look at the potential impact on diverse community groups. Yeah, a super important area for making sure that infrastructure serves um, communities across the country. And it's not only important in a social sense, but it's important to make sure that the economic benefits are also flowing to different communities. So the fourth pillar of the Infrastructure for Good barometer looks at those economic benefits and how infrastructure can empower communities. Tanya, I'd like to ask you how countries can make sure that infrastructure is adequately supporting people's ability to participate effectively in the economy, and how can it support those local economies? The benefits of infrastructure spending on the broad economy, they're well known. It's uh, usually a multiple of the original investment. So there's a benefit which is more than other types of public spending. And this is because of the feedback effect of infrastructure. And let me give you an example to illustrate. Take transport. When we invest in good quality transport connections, they become hubs for residential area expansion. By themselves, they provide more connections to markets. They provide more connection to job opportunities. And this promotes economic prosperity. In turn, that drives even more spending on transport. On the other end, if we don't have good transport connections, there is an impact on uh, workforce the engagement. What we saw during the pandemic in the United States is that many people, and a lot of them working moms, they didn't return to the workplace. You know, One of the reasons uh, that they cite is because of the long commute. Another example that comes to my mind is that the world is becoming rapidly uh, digitalized. The World Economic Forum estimates that around 60% of the global GDP relies on digitalization. But sadly, the digital divide 
is still here and it's still here in the developed countries. I mean, if we stay with the United States, considerable efforts were made to connect rural areas, but people on low incomes, uh, people with uh, non-white ethnic backgrounds, they still have considerably less access to high-speed broadband. So that's why government policies when it comes to universal access are so important. That's why financial incentives to make sure that digital connectivity projects are viable in remote areas, in inaccessible areas. And the final example that I'm going to speak about is affordability, is cutting the cost of infrastructure services. So the last decade, what we saw with renewable energy is that the cost of solar photovoltaics, onshore, offshore wind, they've fallen dramatically. So today, renewable energy from Solar and wind is more cost competitive than conventional energy generation in many countries of the world. And at the same time, the early adopters of clean energy generation, countries like Spain, the UK, they have a double dividend. They also have created green jobs and they also have special expertise in constructing green facilities. Thanks, Tanya. Uh, You mentioned a double dividend, and that's something that did stand out to me as well in the barometer, is that we're seeing a lot of countries kind of begin a push to build sustainable infrastructure, and they're reaping economic benefits in tandem with that. Sarah, how does green investment create new opportunities for job growth or for skill growth? Um, What have you seen in your experience? It's really interesting. I think when people think about green jobs, their minds immediately jump to clean energy. But from my work, I've seen a lot of interest in job creation associated with nature-based solutions or nature-based infrastructure as well. There's a lot of expertise needed in the design, the planning and construction of nature-based infrastructure like living shorelines or various types of habitat restoration that can bring benefits to society. And I know from conversations that I've had that countries are beginning to think about how to plan for what a nature-based solutions workforce might look like, and they're starting to consider training programs that could help make that happen. Are you seeing specific areas where those training programs are more prevalent than others? I think when it comes to nature-based solutions, they're so varied that I think most countries are at a stage of wrapping their minds around what that workforce needs to look like. And so I haven't seen a specific build-out yet on what those training areas are going to focus on but I know that it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, Turning a little bit more to environmental issues around infrastructure, the barometer does show some positives. There's significant awareness among countries about the need for strategic planning. For instance, we are encouraged to see that most countries are conducting strategic environmental assessments. They're assessing their infrastructure for climate vulnerability, and they're drafting national adaptation plans for infrastructure. But those only represent the first step. Uh, Translating these plans into effective infrastructure policies and outcomes is still a work in progress in many places. Sarah, what are some of those gaps that we're seeing in terms of implementing effective policies to promote resilience and sustainability of infrastructure? Yeah, translating resilience planning into implementation of infrastructure projects is definitely an area for growth. So there are very few countries that require or even incentivize infrastructure projects to incorporate resilience. 
I think only seven countries out of the 30 in the barometer require a disaster risk analysis related to climate threats. And I think a lot of this has to do with um, data and uncertainty. So it's very clear that impacts of climate change are happening, but predicting exactly what that's going to look like and how to design infrastructure that can not only withstand those changes, but in some cases help adapt to those changes, can be really resource intensive and require a lot of upfront time and planning. I think encouragingly, the tools and data to predict and plan for climate threats are becoming more and more accessible. And so I hope that as that happens, there will be more incentives or even possibly requirements to use them in infrastructure planning and design at the national level. For those institutions that do develop these types of tools, so that can be governments, that can be universities um, or others, there also need to be efforts to increase availability and accessibility to enable infrastructure planners to use and apply them. But beyond the issue of data availability, I also think one challenge is that designing resilient and sustainable infrastructure also involves a much more multidisciplinary perspective that takes extra collaboration between different sectors to ensure that resilience and likely future climate impacts are considered holistically. And then one final thing to add on, on this issue of resilience is we've seen that there is a lot of confusion around what the sort of quote unquote best guidelines are to plan, design, and build sustainable and resilient infrastructure. And there are numerous resources and standards and guides that do exist to describe methods to do this, but it takes a lot of effort to sort through all that and decide which resources are relevant to a particular project and how it applies in a particular context. So efforts to help get these resources into the hands of infrastructure coordinating bodies or infrastructure planners is also really key. And on a different side of sustainability, when it comes to thinking about how to incorporate protection of ecosystems and biodiversity into the infrastructure life cycle, I think there are some really good signs, but again, still a lot of progress to be made. So there are global targets for ecosystem protections, uh, things like the Aichi target of protecting 17% of each country's terrestrial biomes, which is great. Um, and a few countries in the barometer have, have met that target already. I will say that there are more recent goals that are even more ambitious with many countries aiming to protect up to 30% of important habitats by 2030. And while protecting important biomes and avoiding impact to those areas with extremely high biodiversity value is essential, there's still a lot of work to be done that can go into avoiding and mitigating environmental harms outside of those protected areas when infrastructure gets installed. So to avoid those harms, you need to understand what they are, and that's done through environmental impact assessments and study requirements. So these environmental impact assessments need to be done early enough in the project process that potential harms identified can actually be addressed in a meaningful way before there's too much vested interest and sort of political will in installing a project as it was designed. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, definitely those Environmental impact analyses are crucial in making sure projects are set up for success. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how to implement and manage those environmental impacts effectively? How can we ensure that habitats are protected? Yeah, one phrase you hear a lot when thinking about development impacts on biodiversity and ecosystems is the phrase no net loss. And this means ensuring that if a particular type of habitat is affected, that there's not going to be a net change in the amount or quality of that habitat, even with a new infrastructure project in place. 
So while most countries have some form of environmental impact study rule, very few have no net loss requirements. So only six of the barometer countries have that. Uh, and there's even one country, Sweden, uh, which has incentives in place to try and achieve actual net gains in biodiversity. And these no net loss requirements are really great to see, and it'd be great to see them implemented more broadly. Um, but as I keep returning to, it all comes down to implementation and policy design. So for example, when a project commits to no net loss, this can sometimes involve restoration of habitats equivalent to or similar to those that were destroyed or degraded by a project. So if the project destroys uh, 100 acres of wetland, it then needs to restore or create 100 acres of the same type of wetland somewhere else. But making sure that restoration is actually successful and supports target biodiversity over time takes resources and extended monitoring that need to be incorporated into project plans and budgets. And those needs need to be integrated into no net loss policy. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's really important to get both the policies and the incentives right for projects to succeed. We're seeing that as well on the emissions side of things with most countries having emissions targets in place or carbon trading systems for infrastructure, but it's by no means universal. 12 of the 30 countries have still not put in any type of system for infrastructure projects related to emissions or carbon trading. But positively, we do see some adoption across the board of different incentives to promote technologies that improve either carbon capture or reduce carbon emissions. So countries are taking some steps, but there's plenty of room for progress on this front. Um, before we wrap up, I'd just like to give each of you a moment to share what your high-level takeaways are from the barometer. Uh, what have you learned about infrastructure for good? Tanya, we'll start with you. Thanks, Matt. And I'll come back to my point about ecosystems rather than silos. I think the best thing about the barometer is the approach uh, that is taken here. It's not about uh, the E, it's not about the S, it's not about the G. I mean, looking at sustainable infrastructure is uh, multidimensional, and the barometer is a useful tool to compare the ability of one country against the other on so many different dimensions. Thanks, Tanya. And Sarah, how about you? I think one other thing I'm interested to see is the results of the barometer over time. And I think, you know, as it stands, the barometer is a snapshot of where countries are right now, but it'll be really interesting and informative to see how policies and enabling environments and outcomes um, change in the coming years. Wonderful. Well, that brings us to the end of today's discussion. Thanks once again to our experts, Sarah Mason and Tanya Soneva. Listeners, please tune into our earlier episodes for more great discussions with experts about the keys to achieving infrastructure for good. And be sure to explore the full report and interactive data tool on our website. Thank you again to Deloitte, our sponsors, and to Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability, our research partner. If you'd like more information about the Infrastructure for Good initiative, please visit impact.economist.com slash projects slash infrastructure dash for dash good.